Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Ocean Matters. I'm Helen Cherusky and these bonus podcasts are a chance for us to revisit topics and explore extra content and ideas from the Bertarelli Foundation's podcast series. We've been talking about the changing climate this month. It seems only right with COP26 having been in Glasgow. We do need positive climate action. But as I said in the main episode, while climate change was edging its way into the public sphere, scientists, innovators, communities and campaigners have been busy. They've been building an enormous foundation for action. We are not starting from square one. And one of those scientists is joining me today for this bonus podcast. He's Dr. Gareth Williams from Bangor University's School of Ocean Sciences. He models climate change to better understand its impact on coral reefs. Let's start with how you got into coral reefs. How did you become a scientist of coral reefs? By accident, to be honest. Um, I was in a band for a while that then did well for a bit and then didn't. And so I needed a different career trajectory. And uh, I'd always been interested in scuba diving. And so I, I thought, is there a way in which I can scuba dive for a living and somehow get paid for it? And so that interest in scuba diving led me towards marine biology. And then I rapidly realized I needed some university qualifications. So, you know, back to school I went and then Fast forward 20 years and here I am as a marine biologist. Talk to me a little bit about scuba diving on coral reefs. What, what sort of, you know, describe that pristine environment for us. Oh, I mean, some of the coral reefs that our team is privileged to visit are some of the most remote on the planet. And, um, you know, when you, when you have the lack of the local human impacts that can really change coral reefs, things like fishing and pollution, it becomes really clear when you travel to these remote parts of the world. The first time I went to one of the most remote reefs on our planet, there was sort of three things that really hit me. One was the clarity of the water, just crystal clear. And that's because there's hardly any microbes there. You know, there's no pollution that is fueling that, that growth. Also, when you look at the reef floor, everything that's growing there is helping to build a reef. And that's not always true when you go to human impacted areas. And the last thing, without doubt, is the abundance of large fishes, in particular predatory fishes like sharks. It can be quite unnerving at times until you get used to it. Um, but it's, a, it's probably the most striking feature of some of these more remote parts of our planet. Unnerving is exactly the right word, is because they sort of loom at you. Like they're suddenly they're not there, and then they suddenly are there. They do. They can appear quite nonchalant, but until somebody perhaps decides to do some spear fishing, like we occasionally do for science, then everything can rapidly change. But you know, I mean, we've done thousands of dives in these places, and we've never had any issues with sharks. And it's 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 one of the things I'm passionate about is painting a positive image of having large numbers of predators on reefs. Now, when we talk about coral reefs, obviously the way we get you know what we hear about coral reefs is that they are remote, they're far away, they're on tiny islands. And that seems to imply that they're far away from humans. So surely they should be the last in line uh, when it comes to human impacts. Is that true? No, it's not. Absolutely not. I mean, maybe hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that could have been true. Um, that when the only things that people were doing was, were things like fishing. Now, of course, reefs live in a world you know, that's been termed the Anthropocene, where humans are the, the global force of planetary change. And our actions happen at all scales. You know, decisions that are made by banks and trade agreements can drive things like greenhouse gas emissions, which are driving ocean temperatures and therefore impacting coral reefs. And it could be impacting reefs thousands of miles away. What's the future of corals look like? What are the problems that are coming up? I mean, the future for corals, if we continue to do what we've been doing and we're very good at, which is over-consuming the planet's finite energy resources, fossil fuels in particular, if we continue to do that and we continue to warm our oceans, I think the, the future prospects for coral reefs is very bleak. I think we will see large-scale coral death across many parts of our planet. Tell us a little bit about the mapping project that you've been doing. 
Well, the mapping project really is to take a different spin on that and say, well, what happens if we do do something? You know, you can think of these maps as kind of like playing out scenarios in a computer. You know, what happens if we change our ways? And we don't have to continue to do what we've been doing as a human species. You know, we can make changes. And we've been exploring what changes those impacts then have to coral reefs using these techniques. Let's get into the specifics of your maps then. What, what do they show that's helpful? They show the rates of warming. Well, in this case, sea surface temperature warming. They, they show rates of warming, um, but they, they show that at very um, fine scales. So scales that are relevant for local decision making. You know, a lot of global climate change models, the resolution is you know, upwards of 20 kilometers. We, we downscale these projections to five kilometers so that they make more sense around small islands and coastlines where people are trying to make decisions about how to manage those areas at smaller scales. So it's almost like a scientific crystal ball and it's kind of becoming less and less blurry, basically. The image you can see in the future is becoming less and less blurry as the models and the resolution get better. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, obviously, any model is only as good as what you put into it and there are some strong caveats of our work. But I mean, in the first instance, what we've been focusing on is what we think that future exposure to ocean warming will be to coral reefs across the planet, in particular across the Indian Ocean. And so what do you see when you gaze into your scientific crystal ball? What does the future hold? I'm going to go with an optimistic approach. And if we can get our act together, I think it has, it shows our results show that it's worth doing something. And that's probably the biggest thing that's jumped out for me is that, you know, if we'd found that it makes no difference what we do as a species, that corals are doomed, then that, you know, that's the answer, which would be quite depressing. But it shows actually that we can make some significant changes and those changes will have rapid impacts uh, on corals across our planet. It provides motivation for us to as a global community to start tackling climate change. And one of the things, so you showed me some of your maps earlier, and one of the things that was very striking was that even along the same coastline, some regions are much more affected than others. And so even areas quite close to each other can have different futures. That's right. And that's driven by temperature patterns across our oceans, you know. And so what we do is we use those locally relevant starting points to relaunch these models. And so what that results in is, highlighting really that at small scale, some reefs are set to get very warm very rapidly. And just around the corner, literally, you know, some reefs are set to get, again, equally as warm, but not for many decades to come past the other one. So let's now link this back to the corals, because corals have this very specific symbiotic relationship and temperature affects them in a very specific way. So tell me about that. That's right. Well, the process is called coral bleaching. And corals are a fascinating organism because they are an animal themselves, but they have inside them these um, microscopic algae that are known as endosymbionts. And those endosymbionts can actually photosynthesize. So they can capture the sunlight and turn it into carbon and in that way feed the coral. In turn, the, the algae have somewhere to live that's safe inside the coral so they can't be predated upon. And that mutually beneficial relationship is known as a symbiosis. And, and extreme temperatures can break down that symbiosis. Scientists are still trying to work out who's the weakest link, the coral or the algae. But at some point, that relationship breaks down and the algae either leave or are expelled from the coral. And at that point, the coral can starve to death. So th there's an important point here, which is that often people hear about coral bleaching and they assume that bleaching means the whole thing's dead. But actually, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? It's much more complicated. I mean, just because the coral has lost its photosynthetic algae doesn't mean it still can't survive for periods of time. So the coral is an animal. It can predate on things. It can capture plankton and actually gain nutrition that way. But it's quite hard when they're bleached under that stress to feed. So they tend to turn at that point to, to digesting the fat reserves they have. Right? And that just depends then how many reserves they have. If, they're, if, they're, you know, if they've got lots of fat reserves, they can deal with having the, the loss of their, uh, their endosymbionts for longer. But the critical thing is how long they can survive at that point. If they don't uptake those endosymbionts within a certain amount of time, they suffer mortality. 
So we've got a lovely mental image now uh, that corals can get fat, <laughs> which many people perhaps yeah. didn't know. So let's then get back to the temperature maps and and the consequences then. So if bleaching happens once in one year, that, that's the sort of thing that might happen naturally. But the situation we're looking at now for the ocean is that these events will become more and more common, and that's much more serious. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, bleaching isn't a new thing. You know, bleaching is thought of actually as an adaptive response that corals uh, have acquired through evolutionary time. And... In the past, they, there would have been bleaching on quarries, unquestionably. But the point is, as you mentioned, it's about the frequency of those disturbance events. You know, what, what might have been every 20 or every 30 years is now becoming much more frequent. And we're seeing reefs bleaching, you know, either every five to six years, in some cases, back-to-back bleaching, which we're seeing recently across our planet. And as that gap between those disturbance events closes, it leaves less and less time for recovery, less time for those corals to regain their algae and to start resuming photosynthesis and surviving. So the maps you've created for this project do something very specific, which is to use the year when the bleaching is likely to happen every year. Tell me a bit about that. That's right. We use a metric called annual severe bleaching for sort of comparing the patterns across our planet. What that means is it's the point at which we think that reef location will suffer bleaching-inducing temperatures every year, which leaves zero time for recovery in between. Now, of course, reefs will change long before that. You know, bleaching every five years has serious consequences. And so it's very important to, to note that we are modeling, you know, the point at which there is no return uh, for those temperatures in terms of the impacts they have to the corals. But the corals will change long before then. So you're looking at the year at which the damage potentially becomes really severe. How far ahead in the future is that? Not long at all. In fact, for some reef locations, we're already there. Um, other reef locations, we're, we're talking about, you know, 20 maybe 30 years into the future. As a mean across our planet, so it's about 2040. So, you know, we're only talking about 20 years or so before you know, the average coral reef on our planet is experiencing these, these extreme temperatures yearly. And how much variation is, is that, you know, are there some places which are almost untouched and some where it's terrible or are they all kind of going together? No, there's enormous variation. In fact, even under the sort of fossil fuel aggressive scenario, which we started with, there's a lot of variation. For example, across the Indian Ocean, the absolute range is about 50 years. So some reefs are bleaching every year, you know, in the very near future, some aren't set to reach that until about 2070. And that's just in one ocean basin. And that's just in one ocean basin. Yeah, because of the large gradients in sea surface temperature there exists. So places like the Red Sea that are naturally very hot you know those corals are, are pre-adapted to those kind of temperatures and so we do see occasions where it's going to have to get a lot hotter uh, for those places to start bleaching yearly and of course that's further into the future now we're hearing a lot about commitments to reduce emissions and nationally defined contributions and all those kind of things so if we do what we're supposed to do if we do take this seriously and do reduce emissions what then? How does the path in the future change? It changes. I mean, when you look at the mean, it doesn't perhaps jump out at you. But when you look at that variation that exists between locations, that really does change. I mean, if we meet, say, you know, about 150% of, of the pledges made under the Paris Agreement. So we do need to go further than the Paris Agreement. But if we were to make those pledges, that moves coral reefs into a much brighter future. We're still seeing annual severe bleaching occurring within this century, but it's pushing it towards the later stages of that. There are more places that aren't experiencing annual severe bleaching until 2080, for example, particularly along the southern coast of India and towards Sri Lanka. And so part of this is that if we 
push back the time when the human damage is going to become really severe. The corals themselves, during that time, they're reproducing, there are more generations, they might be able to adapt a bit. That's true. I mean, I would argue that humans are already causing severe damage. But yeah, as it gets more severe, perhaps is a better way to phrase it. And then, yeah, corals can adapt. I mean, we, we see corals now having different uh, levels of thermal tolerance across the planet. Like we go back to the Red Sea again, those corals can withstand much higher temperatures than those in the Central Pacific because of those long-term gradients they've got accustomed to. And so there's that natural adaptation that's occurred over many, many thousands of years, not millions of years, but, but also um, you know, in between these bleaching events. A bleaching event doesn't necessarily kill all the corals. Some survive. And those survivors, probably because they're slightly more thermally tolerant, then go on to have baby corals. And, and you'd hope that through natural selection, those, those coral communities become more resistant to temperature through time. But it takes time. That's the point. And so if we can steer ourselves onto a, a, a brighter scenario, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, slow the rate of global warming, we are buying more time for corals to adapt to the inevitable increasing ocean temperatures. Is it possible to climate-proof reefs? What what can we do? You know, because a lot of, uh, in some scenarios, you know, you might think about forests. You put a big fence around the forest and you say, well, no one's going to go in there and, and maybe it will get better. Can we can we protect, can we isolate and protect a reef like That's that? That's an interesting question. I mean, I guess the historical approach to managing coral reefs has been through things like marine protected areas, right? And, and they're right, very effective at, at preventing some things like preventing fishing or at least regulating fishing preventing perhaps nutrient pollution if, if things are, ch- are changed on land as well. So that, that local scale marine protected areas can be very important. But of course, global climate change doesn't care about the boundary of an MPA, a marine protected area. It doesn't get to the edge of a marine protected area and think, I better not go in here, I might get fined, right? It, it, it goes in regardless. And so now coral reefs are being changed by these large scale human drivers that are affecting our, our, the rates of ocean warming. And our traditional tools at that point break down, things like marine protected areas are not showing evidence of, of, being, of creating more resistant coral communities to um, climate change. So I would argue, no. I mean, the idea of trying to climate-proof coral reefs, I think, is actually quite a dangerous one. I think there's no alternative but to rapidly cut greenhouse gas emissions. And what evidence are we seeing? I mean, the damage to corals has very sadly been going on for several decades already. So there are, there are already damaged coral reefs out there. Is there evidence that any evidence that they're already starting to recover and adapt? Or is this just an idea that they might adapt if if we give them the chance? No, there's definitely evidence for it. And places that have recently um, suffered from very frequent back-to-back bleaching, you know, again, those corals that are surviving um, are reproducing. And then there is evidence emerging in the science community that, that corals are already adapting to these higher temperatures. But again, it's if they've had enough time to. And it's not to say that our traditional tools still won't help. I mean, marine protected areas help to build um, inherent resilience to coral communities. They help to build things like fish biomass, herbivores in particular, that might help to regulate competition between corals and algae, which when corals die, algae can outcompete them. And so I'm not saying that the local scale action like MPAs aren't important, but they have to be in concert with these, with these larger global scale strategies. So let's come back to the maps that you've been making. Looking at the maps is motivating, I guess, all by itself, because you can see very clearly that if we improve our behavior, the outcome is much better. But how do we use them in practice? There's there's a motivation thing. Yes, if we take action, the world can be better, but how do we actually use the details of what they have to show? Well, I guess we can use them to start thinking about where we allocate effort. You know, most people who are tasked with conserving and managing coral reefs don't have infinite resources. They've got limited time, limited money. And so 
they need a plan of action. And what our maps provide is an opportunity for them to be strategic and where they place that effort. Some places may be um, you know, set to get warm so quickly that instead of focusing perhaps on protecting the corals themselves, we should actually be thinking about protecting people, people who are relying on those corals for things like food. That's gonna be the crisis in those places where we need to start helping those people. There are other places that maps highlight where we can perhaps focus effort away from people and more on, on, on safeguarding the biodiversity of the reefs. But those maps help us to make those decisions and they're very important. And coral reefs are suffering many different types of stresses. But if, if you had to write your to-do list of what we need to do to help coral throughout you know, both your life and mine, there have been all these images of beautiful coral reefs and beautiful coloured fish. And we absolutely know because our culture has told us that these are beautiful places. We perhaps haven't been told how vulnerable they are. But if we want to do something, like people walking around the streets, what, you know, or people involved in government, what can we actually do to improve the future for coral reefs? They can tell each other how important coral reefs are. You know, I've often been asked, you know, why, why should I care about coral reefs if I live in inner city London or inner city Manchester? They don't affect me, but they do. Absolutely, they do. They don't only affect people who live on coral reefs. You know, there are many reasons that you should care about conserving coral reefs and therefore changing things uh, that you do in your everyday activities, in, in particular, shifting away from fossil fuel use and educating people on the alternatives that exist. And if we create that momentum as a society, then it becomes the norm to shift away from, from fossil fuels. Traditionally, we in the Western world, we've solved problems in silos. We're solving problem A today and we're solving problem B tomorrow and we might look at problem C on Thursday. And actually the, the big message of climate change is that actually you do need to talk about coral reefs in the same sentence that you're talking about lots and lots of other things. Absolutely, and that brings back to this point about why you should care. Even if you live in inner city Manchester, you should care about whether or not coral reefs survive. You know, one example is you might care about coral reefs because you're interested in biodiversity patterns like I am. So that's one reason to care about coral reefs. Maybe you don't care about biodiversity. You think it's lots of hippie nonsense, you know, and, but maybe you care about immigration, you know, and actually when coral reefs die, lots of people are going to have to be rehomed. And the UK, as an example, has lots of UK overseas territories, which are coral reef islands that house people, and those people have to go and live somewhere. So if you care about immigration, you care about coral reefs. Everyone cares about coral reefs, whether they realise it or not. Thanks so much for joining us, Gareth. That's Dr. Gareth Williams from Bangor University's School of Ocean Sciences. Next time, it's our last main episode for Ocean Matters. We'll be concluding this first series with a panel discussion with those who've witnessed firsthand the changes to our ocean and how they're working to protect it. I'm Helen Cheresky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.